Now, uh, as we transition to our sermon this morning, our scripture reading is from Genesis 1, 28 through 31. This is found on page 1 through 2 in your pew Bible. So we're jumping to page 2 today. And if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. Again, Genesis 1, 28 through 31. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Henry, so much for reading God's word uh, to us. Welcome. My name is uh, Paul Brandis, and I uh, serve here as one of the pastors. I'm so glad that you have decided to begin your week with us. We're grateful that you have given of your time um, to do so. Um, there's a lot happening here during this season. Uh, in addition to the uh, opportunities to engage that Pastor Henry mentioned, I also wanted to make special note that the next Sunday, March 31st, of March, March 31st at 4 p.m., something that we've never done before is happening right here on this platform. Uh, we are going to be hosting a baptism service. So Christ Community has celebrated baptism as a church family as long as we have been open as a church, but we've never done it here at the Brookside campus. This building has never had a baptism within it. Um, and so I'm grateful uh, that we get to host. And so next Sunday, March 31st at 4 p.m., Bill actually next Sunday is going to be preaching from up here because well, there's going to be a horse trough right here. Um, and we're going to baptize some people, and it's going to be amazing. So if you have not been baptized, this is your chance to do it, not only with your broader Christ community family, but within the building uh, that you attend regularly. And so we'd invite you to reach out to me, reach out to Bill, get that process started, and then, and then come. Come and see uh, your church family uh, get baptized. I'm so excited about that. Well, this morning, as we move to page two, we're doing it. Uh, we need God's help. We need God's help to understand his word, and so please join me in praying that he would show up during this time. Father in heaven, um, move in this place, Lord. Be here now with us. We know you already are. And increase, Lord, as I diminish, speak through me and, and have something we know you already do for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this week I watched the Oscar-winning National Geographic documentary Free Solo. Free Solo. Maybe you've heard of this. Maybe you've seen it. I was able to get it free on Hulu. Uh, I'd encourage it. It's amazing. I'm a bit behind, but I'm glad that I caught up and finally watched it. Because for one, the storyline is amazing. So this is uh, rock climber Alex Honnold, and he does the first ever free solo climb of El Capitan, which is in Yosemite National Park. Free solo, meaning that he climbed 2,500 feet up the side of a cliff, as you can see, wearing zero safety harnesses, zero safety restraints, one minuscule slip, one inch wrong, literally one inch wrong here or there, and 
game over. And, and even though you know now, I'll, I'll spoil the ending, he doesn't die, okay? Even though you know that, right? They might not have made the movie, okay? Right? But even though you know that, I promise you the documentary is worth the watch because I cannot do justice to the way the filmmakers draw out the tension of his decision to do this, to attempt this. I can't draw out, I can't do justice to them drawing out that tension. So I encourage you to watch this because the other thing that I can't do justice to this morning, the second thing that I just can't even absolutely describe in the way that it needs to be is the breathtaking beauty of El Capitan. Just take a look. Just take a look. So, so every single person on the camera crew was a professional climber themselves, which I didn't think about before, but that makes sense, right? But that was a great call by the director, who also was a professional climber, by the way, right? But what that means is that the shots that they get of El Capitan, which I had never spent, I mean, I was like, I hadn't, maybe I've seen a picture of that before, but I had never spent any time actually marveling in the beauty that is this bit of God's creation. Because maybe, maybe that's it, right? Maybe it's because we're studying the book of Genesis here at church right now, but the entire time that I watched this riveting story, one of the only things that I could think was, God made that. God made that. Sure, Alex Honnold climbed it, and props to him. That is one of the singular greatest athletic achievements of all time. In fact, in the documentary, there's one of the climbers that really knows what he's doing. He says, imagine that you're going for a gold medal in the Olympics. So that level of athletic competition. You're going for a gold medal in the Olympics, but if you do anything wrong, you die. He said that's what he's doing. It's that level or even more of athletic achievement, right, and we don't have to dive into all of it, right? But so it's amazing that Alex Honnold did that. But Alex Honnold didn't make that. God did. God did. God made that. Folks, don't miss it. Don't miss it this morning with me. God is the first worker, and he's very good at it. God's the first worker, and he is really good at it. This is what we see when we marvel at El Capitan, and it's what we're going to discover in our scripture passage this morning which we can find in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. This morning marks the fourth Sunday of our new teaching series. We've titled it, In the Beginning, God. In the Beginning, God. And we've drawn that from Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. And I know, I, I imagine you're thinking along with me, wait a second, we've been in this series for four weeks and we're still in chapter one? I get it, I do. I give you my assurances this morning, we will wrap up in Genesis roughly in the neighborhood of like 2025. <laughs> I promise, okay? No, it'll be before then, right? But there's a reason that we're treading slowly. There's a reason we're taking our time with this. There's a reason we're just moving to page two. It's because this stuff matters. Genesis sets our course. Genesis is at the foundation Everything else is built upon these first chapters of Scripture, and so if we get this wrong, that wouldn't be very good, would it? How stuff begins matters. How stuff begins matters, and Genesis is our origin story. It's the story of how we got here. It's the story of what our purpose is, and it's the story of how everything else got here too. 
And in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we see complementary portrayals of the very beginnings of this story. You see, in Genesis 1, Moses, who authored these chapters, he takes a camera, so to speak. He takes a camera and he does the panoramic view. Do you remember when your iPhone got the panoramic view? It was like, oh my goodness, right? This is what Moses is doing in Genesis 1. He's giving us a panoramic view of all of God's creation. And he culminates, this is beautiful, right? He culminates in Genesis 1.27 with the creation of what? Creation of you and me. The creation of humanity, of male and female. That's the culmination, Genesis 1.27. And then Genesis 2, Moses takes the camera and he, he turns off the panoramic view and he uses the, the zoom lens, right? So panoramic in chapter 1, and then the zoom lens in chapter 2. And he focuses in more specifically on, well, the creation of, of us, of, of men and women. In fact, that's likely the heading that you have in your Bibles over Genesis 2-4, the creation of man and woman. And I know, I, I read that and I go, wait a second, didn't we do that in chapter 1? Wasn't that, the point, wasn't that the culminating point in, in Genesis 1-27? But this is classic Hebrew literature. This happens all the time in Hebrew literature, this circular storytelling, and this happens particularly when the author wants to underline something that's really important. So here's what's happening here, right? God, through Moses, is saying the creation of male and female, the creation of humanity is so important that we can't just talk about it once. We can't just talk about it once. No, we have to circle back to it and we have to come at it with a different camera angle. We have to come at it with a different lens. We have to zoom in on it. And so that's what's happening in Genesis chapter 2. In fact, let's go there right now, verses 5 through 9. Follow along with me. When no brush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, why? For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land yet, and there was no man to work the ground. Stop there for a second. Because that clause is really important. There was no man to work the ground. Because I don't know about you, but when I read Genesis 2, 5 through 7, when I read these verses, they, they kind of strike me as being confusing. They strike me as being a little bit chaotic. And they are chaotic. That's the point. You see, what Moses is doing here, what God through Moses is doing here is saying there was no man yet to work the ground. What we're going to find out this morning is that's our job. And so the reason that there's chaos in verses 5 and 6 and 7 of Genesis 2 is that we hadn't showed up yet. God had not created us yet. So the chaos, the confusion is purposeful. It's by design to give you this sense of, hey, something is needed here. What's needed? It's us. For man had not been created to work the ground yet. Verse 6. So a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the earth. Then what happened? Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Church, do you see it? Do you see it in these verses as well as in Genesis 1? God is the first worker, and he is very good at it. God is the first worker, and he is very good at it. 
He's creating man from dust. He's breathing life into our lungs. God is a gardener. He's planting, sowing, growing, cultivating. God is causing beautiful trees to spring up from the ground. God is causing food to ripen. Food that is good. Food that is beautiful. Food that is delicious. And did you see, did you catch in Genesis 2 how closely God is involved with these creative acts? Did you catch how intimately involved he is in this creation process? This is a complementary profile. It's a complementary portrait as opposed to chapter 1, right? Because in Genesis 1, God is big. God is huge in chapter 1, right? We sang about it last week in the song, So Will I. I love that song, So Will I. As you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. As you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. Chapter 1, Genesis 1 is all about God's size, God's grandeur, God's transcendence. You read chapter 1 and you are blown over by how big this God is. But in Genesis 2, he's close. God's hands are down in the dust. He's picking up the dust and he's, he's bringing it together. And then what is he doing? He's breathing his breath of life into us, causing us to live. He's reaching down into the earth that he created and he's pulling up trees. He's willing the fruit to ripen. God is, God is close. God is personal in Genesis 2. He's intimately involved. He's big. He's huge. Genesis 1. But he's close and he's right there as well. This is God. This is God. And when you marry these two portrayals of God together, when you read through Genesis 1 and 2 faithfully, which is challenging to do, I know that, but when you do, I really think the point is unassailable. God's the first worker and he's really good at it. God's such a good worker. But I think this point begs a question. I know it does for me. Because what does every good worker want with their work? What does every good worker want with their work? When a good worker completes a project, what do they want to do with it? What do they want to do with it? Well, I'll answer that question, my question. I'll answer my question with my son, Bevan. For his age, Bevan, almost four, he turns four in just a couple weeks, he definitely qualifies as a good worker. Bevan is careful, he's patient, he's diligent, he's passionate about his work. I understand these are not words that you would typically use to describe a three-year-old, but you haven't met Bevan maybe. <laughs> this is who he is. And every single time he completes a project, Legos, art, a puzzle, every single time he completes a project, what does he do? He comes and he finds me, right? He comes, he finds me. Dad, dad, he's eager. He's excited. Dad, dad, come and see what I made. Come and see what I made. Come and see. Come and see what I have made. You know it to be true. Every good worker wants their work to be seen. Every good worker wants their work to be delighted in, to be admired. And God is no different. God wants his work to be seen. God wants his work to be delighted in. God wants his work to be admired, to be enjoyed. Of course he does. But there's a major difference. There's a major difference between us and God when it comes to this part of our work. A major, major difference. And Bevan, once again, and I love him, he proves the point, right? 
Because what happens when Bevan's good work is a Lego tower? And, and he builds these, right? And he takes his time on these and he, he creates something, not out of nothing, but out of Legos, right? He creates something out of Legos and he's proud of this tower. He loves this tower. And what does he do? He comes and he finds me, right? He's walking around the corner into the kitchen to find me. And then who shows up? Who comes in behind him? His little brother, Owen. We love Owen. <laughs> Owen's great. Owen's not so diligent, right? I mean, he's only two, but what does he do with said tower? Crash. Shatter. And then what happens with Bevan? Anger, right? Yelling. Stomping. Hitting. Time out. <laughs> they actually do love each other a lot, but you know this happens in our home, right? You know this happens in our home. And I'm not throwing Bevan under the bus, right? Because I do the exact same thing with my work. Maybe you do too. When I've created something that I'm convinced is perfect, I don't want collaborators. I want an audience. When I've created something that I love and I spent time on and I wrote that sermon and it was perfect and it was amazing and it's going to be so great, I don't want coworkers. I want applause. Right? I mean, I... I'm, I want my work to be seen. I want my work to be enjoyed, but I'm jealous with it. I'm possessive of it. Don't touch. You'll mess it up. This is mine. What do you think you're doing? No, you can't help. It's perfect already. Do any of those sound familiar to you? I mean, it's likely that we've all uttered them at some point, isn't it? Except there's one person, there's one being in the universe who has never uttered one of those phrases. Do you know who it is? It's God. God has never said that about his work. In fact, here's what God does. I love this. It blows me away. God looks at his very good creation. God looks at his very good work and he says, join me. God looks at what he's made and he says, join me. Make it better. This blows me away because God is a better worker than all of us combined. But he's not jealous with his work. He's not jealous with his creation. He's not possessive of it. He opens his hands and he gives it away. He opens his hands and he blesses us and invites us to do what? To join him. To join him. To jump in and make it better. To take it someplace. I love this. And we find it so clearly on the pages of our passage this morning. We're going to marry Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15 together. I have that on the next slide. This is Genesis 1.28 at the top. This is Genesis 2.15 at the bottom. Listen to how God invites us to join him. And God blessed us, the first humans, and God blessed them. That's you, that's me. And God said to us, he said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion over every living thing that moves on the earth. And 2.15 reads this way, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to what? To work it and keep it. What we see in both parallel accounts of our created process, of humanity's creation, we see God's great invitation to us. We see God's join me on display. God is not selfish with his work. I mean, just consider our job description. Be fruitful. 
multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over every other living thing that moves on the earth, then what? In 2.15, what else is in our job description? Work the garden. Keep the garden. God's not jealous with, our, with his work. God's not jealous with his creation. God says to us, here are the Legos. I got started building, but join me. Make it better. Make it more beautiful. God says, here are the ingredients. I started on dinner, but would you jump in? I need your help. God says, here is my artwork, but I've left out a few paints, a few different hues, a few different colors. There's space for more trees and bushes. Add them in. Enrich it. Improve it. Make it better. This is, friends, this is an incredible, unbelievable creation. If you were the God, if you were the person that made Al Capitan, don't you think you'd just say, you know what, I'm good. I did that. I'm okay. I'm all right. But God didn't. God doesn't. Instead, what he does is he invites us. He invites us. And I wish we had time to cover all of these elements of our job description in detail, but instead what I want to do this morning with our remaining time is I want to summarize, summarize our invitation, summarize our job description with two roles, two roles. I believe that God invites us to join him as rulers and as gardeners. God invites us to join him as rulers and as gardeners. So first, God says, join me as rulers. Now, Pastor Bill shared a bit about this last Sunday because, you see, part of what it means to be made in the image of God, and that was at the core of Bill's sermon last Sunday. It was fantastic, by the way. If you missed it, I'd encourage you to catch up. Find it on our podcast feed. And Bill preached on the image of God. And one of the things that he talked about was how all of us should be called majesty, Because you see, God is king, and we're made in his image. We're made in his likeness. And what this means is that we rule with him. Bill said so beautifully, each and every one of us, each and every one of you has a crown on your head and a scepter in your hand. A crown on your head and a scepter in your hand. Amen. And we rule with God. We rule with him over his creation. We're invited to do that. Now, we must never forget. We can't ever forget who the ultimate king is, who the forever king is, right? We rule with God, but we're joining him in this. We're not taking over. He's still ultimately in charge. He's still calling the shots. We rule as stewards. We rule as engaged managers. But our name's not on the deed, We're stewarding. We're managing. We must never forget who this world belongs to. We must never forget who created and who is created. Who created us and who then we are creation. We're part of creation. God's the first worker, not us. God is at the center, not us. Yes, you are a king. Yes, you are a queen. But that's with a lowercase k. That's with a lowercase q. God and God alone is the only one who is capital K, King. We can't forget that. Now, where do we see this role as ruler in our job description? Where do we see this from Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15? Well, we draw this primarily from a few of the commands, from the commands to subdue the earth, subdue the earth, and to have dominion over the other living creatures. That's from Genesis 1. Subdue the earth, have dominion. And then from Genesis 2, the command to keep the garden. 
Keep the garden, Genesis 2. Now, from Genesis 1, right, subduing, subduing and having dominion, those sound harsh. I know they do. They sound harsh. They sound controlling. They sound negative. And in, in fact, at other places in the Old Testament, when we encounter these words, they, they do have a much more negative bent to them. They're attached to more negative actions. But what we cannot forget is that this here is Genesis 1. This is pre-sin. This is pre-brokenness. This is pre-fall. This is pre-death. This is pre-decay. This is when everything still was good and right and beautiful. And so, yes, there's an element of control within the action of subduing, within the action of having dominion. There is an element of control. But this ought to be, originally it was designed to be benevolent control. We might use the word harness. Harness. Harness like you would an animal that is working a field or going on a walk. We are invited to harness in a benevolent way the earth's potential for the good that it can produce. That's what we're doing when we're subduing. When you are exercising dominion, we are harnessing the good that is possible in God's world. And the command from Genesis 2 to keep the garden, this fills out more of our role as rulers. You know, actually, I think protect. Protect might be a better translation. Protect the garden. Protect the earth. Because what king would be worth his salt if he didn't protect his kingdom? And so God instructs us to protect what he has made because he knows that there is always a way to make a good thing go bad. There's always a way. And God says, don't do that. Don't let my good creation go bad. Don't take it and misuse it. Don't twist it and break it. Instead, protect it. Protect it. Now, protect the earth might make you politically nervous, or others of you might be very excited when you hear protect the earth, depending on where you fall in the political spectrum. But I'll steal another line from Bill from last week. This isn't about being politically correct. This is about being biblically correct. Trust me, I don't, I don't know enough to be making any sort of political statement right now. That's not what I'm doing. All I'm doing is translating a Hebrew word and, and offering to you what it means. Protect the earth. And what I'll also do is tell you that the Bible does clearly teach from beginning to end that matter, the, the physical stuff that makes up this world, matter matters. Matter matters. God doesn't just care about the souls of humans. He cares about our bodies too. And he cares about the rest of his created order as well. This, all of this, right? And thanks be to God, all of this is not just going to burn up and go away. But instead, God is going to make it new again. That's where all of this is heading. That's what we see at the end of the story. is God entering in again to his creation and breathing new life into it. Which means that protecting it in the here and now is of vital importance. It's of vital importance. So what does this look like in Kansas City in 2019? Well, I think we ought to care about the products that we use and the habits that we cultivate. Not because it's trendy, but because this is part of ruling with God. At work, we should seek to care about the triple bottom line. Profit, yes, but also people and planet. At home, we ought to consider our wastefulness. We should pursue sustainability. We should protect the earth. 
Because this matters to God. And I know that these are complicated, layered discussions. We're barely scratching the surface right now. There's much more that could be said. But as we form our convictions and our habits, we would do well to live into the attention, live into the tension that's articulated by Jay Richards. He writes this, God intends for us to use and transform the natural world around us for good purposes. For good purposes, right? Proper use is not misuse. But as fallen creatures, we can, of course, mess things up. And he's right. We can mess things up. We have messed things up. But that part wasn't in our original job description. That comes a touch later. We're going to get there. But as rulers, God instead didn't call us to mess it up, but he called us to protect his beautiful creation. That's part of what it means to rule with him. But that's not the only thing that God invites us to do. God invites us to rule with him, but he also invites us. And he says this. He says, join me as gardeners. Join me as gardeners. Now, I sort of wish that this one wasn't true because I've got the opposite. I've got whatever the opposite is of a green thumb, just the exact opposite, right? Don't give me plants as a gift. That's not a good idea, right? But this also we can find plainly within Genesis 1.28 and Genesis 2.15. So take a look again at these verses. And first, in Genesis 1.28, we see the phrase underlined and italicized, be fruitful, be fruitful. Now, this has most often been understood to refer to our procreativity, our ability to make others, to make other humans, right? And we know that to be true because how does it continue? Be fruitful and what? And multiply and fill the earth right? So this is about our ability to make other humans, which we did and which we are doing and which we will do, quite obviously, right? Be fruitful is about procreativity. But let me tell you something this morning. Let me invite you into this. Be fruitful is about so much more than just procreativity. It is also about productivity. Productivity. Be fruitful is about contributing. It's about making something more of what God has already made. It's about taking this world somewhere, which sounds a lot like what a gardener does, doesn't it? Taking raw materials and making something more with it, maximizing potential, cultivating what could be, sowing the seed and tending it, removing weeds as they grow, watering when the soil dries out, and on and on and on. Joining God as gardeners is how we take the world somewhere. And it's not just for farmers either. It's much bigger than that. Gardening with God. Gardening with God is the creation of neighborhoods. It's the creation of cities. It's the invention of new technologies that make our world so much better. Right? I'm, I'm meeting with a congregant several weeks ago, right? And he just started a new job at St. Luke's in translation work, right? So when somebody comes into the hospital and they have something that's wrong with them and they don't speak the same language as the ER docs and nurses, that's a major problem. There are translation services that are an iPad on a stick with people that are trained in medical terminology to be able to get these folks the help that they need. That's gardening with God. That's the invention of new technologies that make it possible to knit this broken world back together. That's gardening with God. That's what it looks like. Because what we would say, right, is this is where our work comes into focus. Our work comes into focus. And we find this as part of our job description as well in our command to work the garden, 
Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it, to work it. This word at other places, work, in, in the other parts of the Hebrew Bible is translated as worship. This is work as worship. This is the idea that God cares very deeply about Sunday. Yes, he does. He cares very deeply about Sunday, but not just about Sunday. He cares about the work that we do on Monday, too. Monday here at Christ Community is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for all of life. So it's more than work, but it's not less than that. It's never less than that. And so let me ask you, how does your nine to five, what is it? What is your nine to five, and how are you gardening with God within it? What is your nine to five, and how are you gardening with God within it? Or maybe you're a stay-at-home parent. Then nine to five doesn't really work for you, right? You're gardening with God on more like a 6 a.m. to 8 p.m. type of schedule. And you're always on call. Or, or maybe you're retired, holding, holding no set schedule. Well, then I would submit humbly that you, you have more schedule freedom. Not unlimited, but you have more schedule freedom to contribute and garden in unique and needed ways. This is why we interviewed Carl and Kay Roscoe, right? The this time tomorrow moment, several months ago, we brought Carl and Kay on the table. They may be retired from their careers, but if you know Carl and Kay, you know they garden with God better than anyone, Right? And I believe that this marriage, this marriage between God's design for humanity and his design for the rest of his created order is brilliant. I think it's brilliant. It's a beautiful idea. Build a creation that is fundamentally good and contains enormous potential for more good stuff. And then create image-bearing workers to maximize that potential, working within it to take it somewhere. This is the best idea God ever had. Author and scholar Andy Crouch says it this way. God made wheat, we made bread. God made grapes, we made wine. Good, and then very good, right? And everyone said amen. So imagine with me for a second. What could your Monday work look like in this framework? What could this look like in your Monday work? You know, I love the song Day by Day. Day by day. It's from the album Work Songs by Porter's Gate. We're actually going to close the service today with a song about our labor not being in vain from this album. It's amazing. We're going to sing this today, right? But this is a different song on the album. The whole album, album's great. I'd recommend it. But Day by Day by Joy Ike, she writes this. Server, you remind us of our Savior's bowl and towel. Teacher, you are raising up a child to be kind. Lawyer, give us hope that justice one day will surround us. Farmer, you are working for a table full of bounty. Painter, with each color you are teaching us to see. Nurse, doctor, yours are the healing hands that touch the poor and broken. Carpenter, you frame a house for those who need protection. Laborer, you lift a heavy burden for the weak. And leaders... Leaders, build a city. Build a city that all children may rejoice in. Is that not amazing? That's gardening with God. That's fixing what is broken. That's maximizing what is good. That is taking this world somewhere. And if you're not on that list, add yourself to it. Add yourself to it. Maybe you're an engineer. Your line might read, engineer, make practical the principles of science and the means of technology. Vitalize the earth's resources for the common good and flourishing of all. Now, that's not exactly poetry, 
We'll leave that to Joy, Ike, right? But you, you get the point. This perspective, this perspective is of vital importance, and when understood properly, this changes everything. I mean, just take a look at the quote by Nancy Percy from the book Total Truth. Our vocation is not something we do for God, which would put the burden on us to perform and achieve. Instead, it is a way we participate with God's work, in God's work. For God himself is engaged not only in the work of salvation, but also in the work of preserving and maintaining his creation. Amen and amen. Remember, God looks at his very good work and he says, join me. Join me as rulers and as gardeners. Have you done that? Have you accepted his invitation? Have you joined him yet? You know, there are other invitations that God extends to us as well. One of which was also mentioned actually in this quote by Nancy Percy. Maybe, maybe you see it. Maybe you notice it as well. Yes, she talks about the work that God has and the invitation that he extends to us of preserving and maintaining his creation, but what else does she mention? What else does she say that God is involved in? She says that God is involved in the work of salvation, of salvation, because unfortunately that is where all of this goes. In just another chapter, we find ourselves in Genesis 3, and in Genesis 3, everything comes off the rails. Our first father, our first mother, Adam and Eve, they rebelled against God. They ran away from God. They rejected God. They disobeyed him. And in that moment, they caused a Grand Canyon-sized rift in between our relationship with God. And in the same moment, they also shattered, seemingly beyond repair, his good and great creation. Seemingly beyond repair. Genesis 3 is the ultimate example of what happens between my two beloved sons when Owen shatters Bevan's good work of a tower. We're Owen in that scenario, by the way. We're shattering God's creation. We're breaking it seemingly beyond repair. But God doesn't give up on us, does he? Not in the slightest. No, of course not. God doesn't give up. Instead, he pursues us. We shatter his creation, and he moves closer. He pursues us relentlessly with a never giving up, never stopping, unbreaking, always and forever love, and he pursues us to the point of what? Of sending his one and only beloved son, Jesus, into his now shattered creation. We shattered it. We broke it. But God still opens his hands. He opened them in the first place so that we even exist, so that creation exists. But then we shatter it, and does he close his hands? No, he opens them willingly again to send us Jesus. To send us his one and only beloved son, Jesus. Because folks, friends, you and I, we need a savior. We, like the rest of creation, we are broken. We are shattered seemingly beyond repair. But thanks be to God that there is a savior. And his name is Jesus. And if you look closely, if you peer closely, then what you will see is that Jesus is knitting us back together. Jesus is making us whole again. We don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. But he's doing it. Jesus, if you look closely, is making everything sad come untrue. Jesus is extending the offer of salvation, the invitation of salvation. And you know what? If you accept that invitation of salvation, if you say yes to Jesus, then you also get to join him as a gardener and as a ruler. And you also get to be part of what it is to make everything sad come untrue. You get to be part of what it is to knit this world back together again. That sounds pretty good to me. Where do I sign? 
That's what I want. I want to say yes to that invitation to both parts. Because I know I need a Savior. I know I need to accept that invitation, and I want to join him as well. Are you with me? You know, this invitation of salvation is something that we actualize each and every Sunday. It's something that we practice each and every Sunday in the practice of communion. Because what is communion if it is not responding to an invitation to taste and touch the salvation that is available in Jesus? And I find it fascinating. Maybe you do too. I find it fascinating that Jesus chose something that we made, bread. We made bread. God made wheat. We made bread. But Jesus chose bread to symbolize his body. God made grapes, we made wine, and Jesus chose something that we made to symbolize his blood. Is that not beautiful? Even in the practice of communion, we see the realities of our gardening role with God playing out as we taste and touch Jesus' body and blood symbolized in bread, something we made, and symbolized in, well, for us, in juice, something else that we made. And so this morning, you are invited to the table Invited to accept God's great invitation of salvation available in Jesus.